0: you have a copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 1 this morning. Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 through 17 as we think this first Sunday of Advent about crooked Christmas portraits. You know it's big business in our culture, in our society to have these Christmas pictures that are taken to families and sent to uh, friends and family members. Uh, many of you may be have taken your Christmas pictures and begun the process of putting those on cards and sending them out. And I tell you, I have three boys, so I can't imagine necessarily what this is like with girls. I imagine that when you say to your children, uh, to the, especially those of you that are parents of girls, we're going to do Christmas pictures this afternoon, so get dressed, and we're going to be coordinated, and we're going to have the right scenery, and you can't just take one shot. I imagine your girls are like, wow, this is a whole lot of fun, because they're girls, right? I mean, that's, that's what girls do. I tell you, I, I can say this from experience, boys don't do that. They, they, they don't find that. They're, when we say, uh, let's get dressed, tuck in your shirt, let's smile, let's be a happy family, there is weeping and gnashing of teeth at the Eldridge house. There is something about when the iPhone camera comes on, or you're taking a picture. There's just something about that that I'm usually kind of culminating at that moment where I would say, "Say cheese." I'm saying, "Shut your mouth and act like you like each other." I mean, that's that's uh, the seven deadly sins usually come in correspondence to us taking our family pictures. Together, maybe too much information right there, but you get the point right there. So I I, I tell you, though, it's interesting in Christmas because there is something about the Christmas season that doesn't have a lot of margin for messiness. It just there's something about the Christmas season where it just feels as if you just got to get everything together. And, and everything, everybody's cheerful, everybody's happy, everything's good. It's the, it's the holly jolly best time of the year, right? So, so you should have the best time of the year. And there's just not a whole lot of margin for something that's a little off-center, a little crooked. In Matthew chapter 1, we see the first crooked Christmas portrait. When we look in God's Word, we kind of anticipate that there are going to be these saintly sanitized Christmas pictures. But what we discover is, is that when you get the first Polaroid shots of uh, the Christmas story, that there's a lot of mess there. It's not quite as sanitized as you might have thought it would have been. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 7 is a list of begats. It's a list of the father of. It's the genealogy. So, what we're looking at is a a big family portrait, literally a, a portrait of a family tree here. It goes like this in Matthew chapter 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah, and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab. I think we've got another 30 fathers of. Can we breathe here? You know, I tell you this. When, when I read the genealogies, just like sometimes when you read them as you're going through your daily Bible readings, there's a temptation to skim them or to skip them. Actually, there's a temptation I find in preaching that you might be tempted to, to zone out in this. So i tell you what I'm going to do. I want us to hear the genealogy maybe in a little fresh way this morning.
1: Abraham had Isaac, Isaac he had Jacob, Jacob he had Judah in his kin. Well, then Perez and Zerah came from Judah's woman Tamar. Perez he brought Hezron up and then came Aram, then Amminadab, then Nashan, who was then the dad of Salmon, who with Rahab fathered Boaz. Ruth she married Boaz. Who had Obed who had Jesse Jesse he had David who we know as king David he had Solomon by dead Uriah's wife Solomon well you all know him he had good old Rehoboam followed by Abijah who had Asa Asa had Jehoshaphat had Joram had Isaiah who had Jotham Manasseh, who had Amon, who was a man, who was father of a good boy named Josiah. Who grandfathered Joachim, who caused the Babylonian captivity because he was a liar. When then he had Shealtiel, who begat Zerubbabel, who had Abiod, who had Eli him had Azer, who had Zadok, who had Achim. Achim was the father of Eliab then. He had Eliezer, who had Nathan, who had Jacob. Listen very closely, I don't want to sing this twice.
0: Good, there we go. A little little bit better than me just reading them to you this morning. And now, Miss Linda, let's do it together. Ready? Uh, This is Andrew Peterson. Andrew Peterson has a Christmas album called Behold the Lamb of God. Every year in Nashville at the Raman Theater there, they do this whole album. This is the fifth track on the album called Begats, and so it's one of my favorites. So it's not Christmas at the Eldridge household until we get a, a song about the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1 in our household there. So what is it there for? Because, you know, it's one of these things, if we're going to be honest, the genealogies are tough to deal with for just the... All of us. I mean, do we skip it? Do we skim it? What's the purpose of it? I think it's important for you to see what actually is occurring in the way that the genealogy is being presented here. There's three sections equally with 14 names that sort of divide the sections up here. You can graph it, if you're a visual learner, with an N. Let's look at the N together. So it starts with Abraham, the the beginning of the story of the Israelite nation. We go to the highlight, the very top of this N right here, which would be the high point of the Israelite history in in King David's reign and rule. We begin this downward slope that comes to the lowest point in verse 11. That is the Babylonian exile. We think it can't get any better, but what do we discover? We come to another high point, the tip of the end in Jesus Christ in verse 16. So Abraham to King David to Babylonian exile points us to Jesus Christ. Notice the first Couple of words that we have in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1, uh, th- or just right there in verse 1, the book of the genealogy. Th- that is a familiar phrase that should bring us back to where we have heard it before. Where have we heard it before? Well, one of the places that we've heard it before, two places we've heard it before, is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, and Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. It's there in Genesis that we have these genealogies that tell us. Uh, who God is working through and the specificity of the names that will ultimately be the Israelite nation and that will point us to Jesus Christ the genealogies are there to say that God works not only in the, in the macro, but in the micro. He not only works in this cosmic way, but he works in a specific way with actual people in an actual place that was insignificant in the great grand schemes of human history, the nation of Israel. So it's not surprising to us when we read of the new Israel, Jesus Christ, and how he is going to come that Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, would draw back upon the, the genealogies to say, listen, I'm not telling you a new story that has no continuity to the story that's come before, but I want to show you how this is the crescendo of the song that we've been singing that started with Abraham, that culminates in Jesus Christ here. Notice in this passage here, as we think carefully about what it tells us and how it's presented to us, that it really answers for us two foundational Advent questions. These are two questions that we must consider at Christmas to understand what Christmas is all about. And the first question that's actually answered here in this genealogy is, is, why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come? Notice again in verse one in Matthew one, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Do you know that just in the naming and the titles that are presented there, that the question, why did Jesus come, is answered in that first verse? Did you know that, that the names are significant, that the titles are significant, that there's meaning there found in Genesis or excuse me, in Matthew chapter one, verse one? Well, you know it. I mean, we just had a, a family dedication, and we we heard that uh, Slate and Drake. That that name is a name that is a name that has significance. And you were named, and there was a reason that you were named. Your name names are purposeful. Names are very rarely accidental. Names have meaning. I have three children, three boys, and Hayden, Luke, and Jonathan, they all have, with their first name and their middle name, they have significance for us personally, but they also have biblical significance to us. There's, uh, you know, there's a lot of reasons that my middle son is named Luke, but the primary reason isn't when he comes up to me and says, Dad, why do I have to do that? And I look at him and say, Luke, I am your father. No, sorry. Sorry. Do we have somebody at the drums? <laughs> Sorry. I did not tell that joke at 8:25 or 9:40. It came to me in the inspiration of the moment right there. <laughs> so looking here at the names, we start with Jesus here, and Jesus is a familiar Jewish name. It actually is a shortened version of Joshua. What does Joshua mean in the Old Testament? It means Yahweh is salvation. So Jesus has the equivalency of, of Joe. I mean, it's a shortened version of what we would have. David becomes Dave. William becomes Bill. Joshua becomes Jesus. But at the heartbeat of the deriv- uh, derivation of that wording there is Yahweh is salvation. So there with Jesus' name, we have a way where we're seeing like Luke chapter 19 verse 10 says that Jesus comes. And why does he come? To seek and to save the lost. We have not only Jesus, but we have Jesus Christ. Christ is a title. It's not a last name. It's not like David Eldridge, Daniel Eldridge. It's not Jesus Christ, first and last name. Christ is a title. It goes back to the Old Testament. Hebrew word means anointed Messiah. It is the Old Testament title that would have been used in the Old Testament to talk about the anticipated promise of the hope of Israel that is going to come with the coming of the Messiah. We have Jesus Christ. We connect it to the Son of David 17 times in the Gospel of Matthew, we have the phrase son of David. That is utilized, that phrase, in the Old Testament to talk about the anticipation of a king that would come. Again, verse 11 of Matthew chapter 1, they're in Babylonian exile. They're longing to go to the top of that end and this glory and this resurrection of military might. They were looking for the son of David, the one that would come in the Davidic line that would do that, that would overthrow Roman rule. So we have Jesus Christ, son of David. He will overthrow a rule and a reign, but not in the way that the first century, many of the first century Jews were anticipating nor longing for. He's the son of David, but he's also the son of Abraham. This goes back to verse 2. We have verse 2. We have verse 11. He's the son of Abraham. So the story that began in Genesis chapter 12, where God comes to Abraham and says, leave your family, your kindred, kindred go to a, a land that I call you to go to. That that story in Genesis chapter 12, where he says, I'm going to bless your people, your lineage, and they are going to be a blessing to all the land. How is that going to come to fruition? Well, it is going to come to fruition in the person of Jesus Christ, in his perfect life, his salvific death, his glorious resurrection, his ascension to the right-hand throne of the Father. Jesus taught a lot. This spring, going into the summer, we'll look at Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, Muhammad Gandhi looked at Jesus and said, He is a great inspired teacher. I learned much from him. But you need to understand that while there is much to learn from the teachings of Jesus, his primary purpose was not as an educator, not as a teacher. Although Jesus had this uh, call to to the hurting, he was a miracle worker. His primary purpose, as we see, he did not heal everyone in that first century. Palestinian world, his primary purpose was not the healing of physical ailments. We as sinners, we need not just a great teacher. We as sinners, we need not just a miracle worker. We as sinners need a great savior, a rescuer, and that is the purpose of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham that he has come to provide salvation to all who would trust in his finished work you need not just a great teacher you need not just to be more enlightened you need not just one who can who can cure your physical ailments You need someone who can rescue you from your sinful plight. And there is one who will do that, and his name is Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That is why he came. Not only does this genealogy teach us why did he come, it also teaches us who did he come for. Notice again in Matthew chapter 1, That we were walking through the Andrew Peterson rendition of the genealogy here. And if you were listening closely or reading closely, there were some that stood out. There were some that were different from what would have been the expectations of a first century Jew thinking about the coming Messiah's family tree. Who would those have been? Well, you need to understand in the Old Testament, genealogies were most often, there are two exceptions in Chronicles, but most often all of the genealogies we have in the Old Testament are traced to the male lineage. So we have five females, count them, five females that show up in this family tree. It's almost as if they, they have photobombed the family tree. Do You know what I mean with that. We're talking about portraits. You're taking a picture, and then all of a sudden you have a sarcastic son, and, and he does something like this. These are celebrity photo, uh, photo bombs. You, you're there at the Empire State Building, and all of a sudden, John Hamm and, and Jimmy Fallon are in your picture. Or maybe you're at Central Park taking your wedding photos, and Tom Hanks happens to be running through the day. photo bombers. Now, that we have five of those who are coming to the genealogical records of Jesus that a first-century Jew would have said, whoa! Well, could, we could clean this up a little bit. Their names are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and even Mary. Let, let's take them one by one. Let, let's look not just a panoramic shot of Matthew chapter 1, but let's look at a close-up here. Tamar, it's an R-rated story. Genesis chapter 37 starts the story of Joseph, and then all of a sudden, before we can even get going at Joseph's story, there's this interlude right there, and it's Genesis chapter 38, and it's the story of Tamar. It's a sordid story. It's a sad story. It's a story of her tricking her father-in-law as she pretends to be a temple prostitute and two children are come out of this unholy alliance in this moment here. That's Tamar. We come then to Rahab. Joshua chapter 2 is her story. She also is a Gentile prostitute there located in Jericho. Joshua sends in the spas to spy out the land. And who will they find in Jericho that will give them cover? It is this woman that we know to be Rahab, this woman who would come under the protection of God through her faithfulness. So you have Rahab, you have Tamar, then we move to Ruth. She's a Moabite. I love the story of Ruth in the Old Testament. Ruth and Naomi, the kinsman redeemer by the name of Boaz that comes. But you need to understand Ruth. At her basis, according to Deuteronomy chapter 23, she she wasn't welcomed into the tabernacle. Because why? She was an outsider. She was a Moabite. Then we come to Bathsheba, not by her own choosing, but by one who had all of the position, who had all the power, who had all the prestige, and used that to take advantage of her. And in that moment where we come to King David at the highlight and the high point of the Israelite nation, there is this sharp descendant down. And it's all because it begins in his homicidal thoughts to Uriah. Taking advantage of Bathsheba in that moment. And all of the details that come out of that. This is Jesus' family tree. And you wonder, as they're taking this genealogical family tree portrait, you're wondering, why would Tamar and Ruth and Bathsheba... And why would Rahab be in the portrait? Well, maybe it's a way to prepare us that if you would have been a first century Jew and if you would have uh, come up with the story of who would be the mother of the coming son of David, son of Abraham, who would be the great Messiah that they were longing for, I assure you, if you're auditioning for one to play that role, it will not be an unwed teenage mother embroiled in a small town slanderous scandal. I can assure you, you wouldn't pick Mary. And it's almost as if God in his inspiration is saying through the family tree of Jesus that what I come for and who I come for are the Tamars and the Ruths and the Bathshebas, those that are on the margins, those that are hurting, those that need hope, those that need to be be reminded that my purposes extend to them no matter where they have been. John Woods uh, sent me a quotation this past week from Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German scholar, spy, pastor. And he has a, a section of sermons and writings that have been compiled together in what we know as God is in the manger. And he talks about this very temptation that we have to sanitize the Christmas story, to clean it up. But actually, as Bonhoeffer says, and that is the wonder of all wonders, that God loves the lowly, God is not ashamed of the lowliness of human beings. God marches right in, He chooses people as His instruments and performs His wonders where one would least expect them. A Canaanite brothel is a place that you're not expecting God to be doing a miracle. God is near to the lowliness. He loves the lost, the neglected, the unseemly, the excluded, the weak, and the broken. And this is the wonderful truth of Advent. This is the wonderful truth of Christmas. That Advent is a time where hope has come. This day is the day that we pause to be reminded on the first Sunday of Advent that hope has come. We will light the hope candle in a moment. And maybe you need to be reminded of the great truth of Christmas, the great truth of Advent. That Advent is for the overlooked. Advent is for the one who has been mistreated. Advent is for the one who is on the margins. Why? Advent is first and foremost a proclamation that hope comes for all. Even when in the moment of what they're experiencing, everything is so far from them. The Christmas cheer and the soundtrack of joy that is always around us in these moments of Christmas that that hope is for the one who can't sing that song. Hope is for the one that feels neglected. Hope is for the one that feels lost. Hope is for the one who can't get it together because hope has come and that hope has come in the person of Jesus Christ and his love extends to anyone and everyone who would trust him by faith, regardless of their past, regardless of their proclivities, regardless of their profession, regardless of their personalities, that God's love in the form of Jesus Christ is a hope-filled message that continues to connect to us even today. You, there, there There's so many of us that feel as if Christmas is just not for us because the only way that we can envision Christmas is a a Norman Rockwell painting where everybody seems to be joy-filled and happy and all together. And that just might not be your story here this morning. And you need to be reminded, if if you have a son or a daughter who every night of the week drinks himself to sleep, trying to wash down the guilt of life, hope is for your son. Hope is for your daughter. You need to be reminded, if you're here tonight and, and you have a prodigal, grandson or granddaughter or maybe you are the prodigal here this morning that no matter how far your loved one has traveled to a foreign land that hope still knows how to get to that address that advent is a hope-filled situation when life feels hopeless there are times where we use the phrase uh, a hopeless cause Oh, you've extended love and grace, and, and you think to yourself, I, it's, just, it's just he or she, my coworker, my neighbor, my family member. They're just, they're just a, a hopeless cause. But I just want to remind you that Jesus' own family tree is populated through what people would have viewed as hopeless causes. So what I want to remind you of today in those margins, in those places where you feel as if everything is dark, and everything is dingy, and everything is away from God's love, is that God has a way of still showing up in those places. I remember as a pastor, one of the practices in a previous community was to do a Christmas grief support service. It was always Christmas Eve, and I oftentimes, along with other pastors, would conduct the service, and it was put on and gathered together by a couple of the funeral homes in our community. And anyone who had lost a loved one was invited to this service where the names of their loved ones would be read aloud. There would be times of prayer, singing, and even a brief meditation from God's Word. And it was a time that was oftentimes filled because it would oftentimes be the first Christmas Eve and Christmas season that their loved one wasn't with them. So it was a service that was always filled with with great tears and and great sorrow. And, And I remember when the script flipped. And I went from being the pastor that was conducting the service to, to the parishioner that was sitting in the service, and as, as a parishioner that was sitting there, and, and I realized that this Christmas Eve, my, my own brother would not be with us in our family. I realized, with tears flooding down my face, that hope still extends, even with death knocks on the door, in unexpected ways. that hope still comes. Even when you have loved ones or you can't seem to get your act together. See, that's what Christmas is all about. Christmas is good, glorious announcements that hope and love and joy and peace, they've arrived, not because of our well-doing and our achieving, but rather out of the sheer mercy and grace of a loving God. And so if you're here today and you feel as if life seems a little bit distant and a little bit hopeless and depression or death or despair seem to be knocking upon your door or even kicked in the back door of your life, this is good news that hope is still here in and through Jesus Christ. Every Christmas is a time for us to pause and to think carefully about our family and what's so good. But I want to challenge you this Christmas season, this Advent season, to have eyes open and ears open these next few weeks for the margins of your life and the margins of our neighborhoods and the margins of our society to be able to press into those places where God is working through those 21st century Rahabs and Tamars and Bathsheba's and even Mary's. You know, at times, I feel like we can miss God at work in the midst of the festivities that oftentimes are really, really good. But I'm here to remind you That when we go to those margins, when we go to the place where there are hurts and loss and sickness and disappointment, what we discover there isn't that we bring Christ there, but that Christ was already there, already working, already moving, already ministering, already showing his glory in the midst of those who are oftentimes on the outside. Don't you know that we all are on the outside? Don't you know this morning that that we're all outcasts, that we're all misfits, that we're all people that can't get our act together spiritually, and God, in his great mercy, has seen us as we are and loves us even still. This is the hope-filled message this Christmas that we hang on to, the good news to be reminded of this first Sunday of Advent that God's love extends to any and every crooked family tree, even yours and even mine. Let us pray. But as we look at this original Christmas portrait, we're reminded of your love and your grace and your mercy that is working. And it's working in unique places. It's working in places that we uh, wouldn't even begin to imagine. Not not the sanitize and uh, have it all together places, but in in the mess, in the muck of true human experience. And there is no family, there's no individual that is immune to that in our own flesh, in our own experiences of life. And we just need to be reminded today that hope has come and that hope has come in the form of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. May we join you in what you are doing and what you desire to teach us this Christmas season in the margins of the experience of life around us. May we have eyes to see and ears to hear how you're working in in the messy situations even of our family's life, in the messy situations of even neighbor's life, in the messy places of our own soul. May we see how hope has come and it floods all of those crevices of our life and experience. May we be ambassadors as salt and light of the good, glorious news this Advent season that you, Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham, have come to seek and to save the lost. May we proclaim that glorious news in word and in witness. It's in your name we pray.